นะโมทัสสะปะกะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะกะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะกะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะบุตังธรรมังสังฆังนัมมะสามเ
triple jewel, when we're recollecting Sangha, we chant Supatipano Bhagavato Savaka Sangho. Patipano is the, it's the same word in a different, something to do with the grammar, which I don't understand. But Supatipano means those who practice well. We chant that every day. Ujjupatipano, those who practice straight. Nyaya Patipano, those who practice insightfully, penetrating into the truth. Samichi Patipano, those who keep practicing so that we accomplish, so that we really develop this practice. So what are you talking about? Practice, this Patipati. Well, what we chant every morning and evening, it's Supatipano Bhagavato Savaka Sankho. Bhagavato is the blessed one. Savaka Sangho. That Sangha, that's us to a certain extent if we're practicing. Savaka Sangho, that Sangha of beings who listen, who are listening to these teachings. Now the listening is the beginning of the path. And so there's a, there's a word that actually comes before patipati is called uh, pariyati, which means study or theory. It means, uh, you know, getting a feeling of what we're doing. I mean, what good is it to practice? We say, I'm going for it. And then we start bowing and, and crossing our legs and doing a lot of stuff. But someone says, well, what are you going for? Enlightenment. Well, how are you doing it? I'm not sure, but I'm really... I'm putting top effort in there. And then uh, someone might say, well, you you need a map. It'd be a good idea. If you want to go to London, it's a good idea to have a map. Or at least have a general direction (laughs) that you're going in. It's that way. And that's what uh, Pariyati is. It's it's, It's called the theory or it's called the study, or it's called actually hearing the words. That's why savaka sangho, those who listen, listen. That, that's our entrance. Like the, the first kind of time I heard the word, enlightenment, to me that was, that was a kind of uh, important to me. Just, what's that? Enlightenment. That implies there's an endarkenment, you know, there's a kind of... <laughs> Wisdom, even the word wisdom, and it implies that there's delusion. And so some of the theory that we've been talking about is, is things like uh, the Four Noble Truths, that's theory. There is suffering. It's an idea, it's a word, it's a thought. So maybe we can relate, there is suffering. Old age is suffering, oh, I can relate to that, I'm getting stiff in my shoulder and stuff, or being with what you don't want to be with. I can relate to that. When there's restlessness or something I don't like. There is a cause to suffering. That's theory. That tanha or this deluded craving, this this, uh, desire to always get things our way, cause of suffering. That's theory. Third noble truth, there, uh, there is an ending of suffering. That's a thought. By the letting go of this, this uh, tanha, this deluded desire, this grasping, this rejecting. Fourth noble truth, there's a path leading to the end of suffering. Eightfold path. Right view, learning to see things properly, clearly. That's a theory, something we can just hear. Samaditi, samasankapo, right thought, learning to have right intention, to um, refrain from thoughts of greed, or to, to refrain, or, to, or thoughts that aren't greedy, or thoughts that aren't hateful, or thoughts that aren't cruel. It's right intention, it's this theory. 
right speech. Refraining from speech which is not divisive. Speech which is just slanderous. Refraining from false speech. Refraining from speech which is harsh just for the sake of hurting. It's this theory. And on through the Eightfold Path. In a sense, that's like the math. That's like saying, ah, there is suffering. Okay, I can relate to that. There is an end of suffering. And the end of suffering. Or there is freedom. There is enlightenment. These are all words that imply this sort of place, place of ease. Well, we talked at tea time about the deathless, which isn't, for some people, isn't particularly attractive. But then the Buddha would say, but don't worry, it'll be all right if you do it. You'll like it. He actually said, or it's called the, the peaceful, or the safe, or it's called the beautiful, or the, um, The unborn, that's a strange one. The unborn, that which doesn't change. That's similar to, to hearing about uh, Jerusalem, or hearing about uh, Bodh Gaya, or hearing about New York City, or hearing about London, if you haven't been there before. And then the path, fourth noble truth is, you know, right view, right intention, right speech right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right collectedness, or right concentration. This is the path. Or like saying, you know, take this road to London. Then what we've been doing is called the pati-pati, actually, actually taking what we've heard and then, and then actually practicing it, actually making the effort to sort of translate those sounds, translate those ideas into into effort, into clear seeing. Like the idea of refuge is Buddha Dhamma Sangha. When we first hear that, it's just theory. But then if we making that effort to actually Buddha, start to notice and cultivate that quality of listening, that's called patipat. That's really called the practice. It's the effort. not particularly exciting sometimes it's just uh, learning to get on the road and find the road so supatipano means to find the road and, and uh, whereas the first noble truth is suffering or dukkha supatipano is connected to the first noble truth so it means practicing that which is good so we're practicing when we just try to be good people decent human beings Try to follow the, the foundation of the Buddhist path of virtue, not harming those five precepts, not harming, not taking that which is not given, not using our sensuality to exploit ourself or others, uh, treasuring the power of our speech so that it's used in a skillful way, treasuring our consciousness so that we don't just distort it. The Ujjupatipano, the, the, the second one that we chant, is straight. Uju means not uh, shilly-shally. Our teacher, Arjun Samadhi, used to say it means not shilly-shally. It means straight. Straight between what? The extremes. And so in practicing, we're actually learning to recognize extremes. When we see that we're clinging, see that just trying to take birth by holding on to something, seeking nibbana or seeking deliverance through trying to make something pleasant last forever, we can realize that is the extreme of grasping. The other extreme, as we've talked about, is the crushing, trying to seek deliverance, trying to seek peace by just getting rid of what we don't want. These are the two extremes. Holding on, pushing away. So uju is that in us which can learn to keep 
coming back to the moment, coming back to right view, coming back to saying, hey, what's going on here? Being straight, cutting into the moment so that we see what's really happening here. That's ujjupatipano. And that means, uju means also learning to, that second noble truth means realizing the cause of suffering and really working, working to abandon it. In other words, noticing where we're hurting and then noticing we can perpetuate forever. I'm a victim and it's his fault because he doesn't understand me and it's her fault because she doesn't really love me and it's uh, their fault because they're capitalist pigs or... It's uh, God's fault because what kind of plan do you got going? And um, so then the pain, the suffering of our life we can blame. But then uh, if we think of the, the second noble truth, suffering has a cause. This dukkha comes and that cause needs to be abandoned. So if we're really practicing, then we, we start to take responsibility for our suffering. We start learning to give up blaming and start to notice what suffering am I creating right now? What additional pain, additional anguish, additional confusion am I creating right now by clinging to my views, my opinions, my biases, my clingings, my rejections of this moment? So then the practice, ujjupatipano, if we're devoted then to this sangha practice, <coughs> then we're making the effort to let go. That's what ujju means, to recognize and then make that effort to, if we really see something's extreme, making that effort to let go, come back to that place of clarity. There's a saying that no one can make us suffer. Someone can hurt our body, so that there's pain. But pain in this teaching in and of itself is not the problem. Pain and pleasure are a part of life. One can learn to be peaceful with pain if it arises and ceases. So uju means just recognizing this, grasping this, rejecting, and making that effort to keep coming back to the past. Nyaya patipano, the, the, the third quality of sangha, means uh, really making that the practice to, to see the truth. the true nature of the wind and we see that change when we just let the sound be the sound and notice the peacefulness of not grasping at it the peacefulness of being with suchness and we're practicing nyaya patipano we're seeing the true nature And samichi patipano, developing, not just stopping. We, we want to go to London and we keep going until we get there. We make that intention and our faith is inspired to go to Nibbana or to go to that place of true clarity, true wisdom, true peace. And samichi patipano means that we, we, don't, we don't stop with 
we maintain our humility and honesty and keep practicing for the sake of learning, for the sake of purifying the heart. So like all these uh, qualities we've been talking about this week, the faith, the wisdom, the mindfulness, these, these need to be developed, worked on. But they vary, and, and sometimes they're strong and sometimes they're not so strong, and uh, that's why we just keep going. We've heard a, a lot of words already. I feel like I've said a lot of words. And I've heard a lot of really wonderful words in the tea discussions. And I do, I do feel that there has been some real sincere practice in all of us here. But I am grateful that in this teaching, the words, we don't stop with the words. They're the, they're the signs that they get us going toward freedom. But we don't, we don't uh, put our camp by the signpost and just hold on to the signpost. We, we keep going. So that there's, there's theory, there's practice, and then there's this, this last notion in, in Buddhist teaching is patiweda, uh, which means realization, just realizing it, realizing the truth in our own hearts. And that's something that, that can't be given to us by anyone. That's something that we, we, we just keep working on ourselves. With the, with the skillful means that we have, with the body that we have, the mind that we have, the conditions that our life brings us. And sometimes, uh, sometimes there's a lot of inspiration, a lot of energy, and then we use that. But sometimes there isn't a lot of inspiration. And then we have to develop that within our own heart. Sometimes there isn't a lot of energy, and then we work with a little bit of energy. Or sometimes the faith is very expressive and very powerful but sometimes it might be very quiet very undramatic that doesn't mean to say that it's that something's wrong I think one of the biggest problems in practice is is we have memories of things and we think it should keep being that way we have an experience in samadhi and then we, we keep wanting that one to come back and that very clinging to this idea of what once was is becoming an obstacle. Or we have a very powerful feeling in the heart of, of de- devotion, maybe to the Buddha or, or something. And then we think that must be what faith is and then assume that that... that maybe when that feeling or strength of feeling is not there, maybe think that the, that faculty is not working. 
all of these, particularly with faith, I think faith can be can be purified. I mean, especially faith that's that's come from uh, some of what we've heard in our Christian backgrounds has been a very strong kind of thing, a very powerful, convincing sort of thing. And I, I think sometimes that sort of faith is uh, worrisome. But sometimes faith might be a very quiet willingness just to allow things to be. When our wisdom or our figuring out capacity just... Because to try to figure out this life is just so complicated. Everything is just so complicated in terms of where we're going to live or what we're going to do or what we should change to get things just right. And... There's so many factors shifting all the time in this conditioned realm, not only within us, but in the people around us and the the very earth that we live on. Sometimes faith is is just a very, very quiet willingness not to know, but willingness to allow ourselves not, just to allow ourselves not to know, but to learn to rest with that. So at least in the Buddhist sense, the refuges of Buddha Dhamma Sangha, faith in Buddha, that willingness to listen, faith in Dhamma, the willingness to be devoted to truth, even in the, if the truth is not very inspiring truth, even if, it, if the condition is not tearful, like we like it to be in terms of ecstatic joy, or maybe it's not serene. That doesn't mean to say devote, uh, faith is not operating. Sometimes our faith can, can be very quiet. And, and it reminds me from this uh, talk we had at tea time today. We were talking about where does love fit into all this? And, you know, I think Nikki said that I haven't heard you mention love the whole time. And I think, oh, God, maybe I'm loveless. (laughs) 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 And um, so it was good. It made me really contemplate. And And yet I realized I do have a lot of love. I suppose in, in, in the Buddhist sense, one's learning just to love, also love truth, love that willingness to, to sort of having enough faith to love truth in all its many different manifestations, whether it's in the form of a wonderful, supportive wife like Kanisra, fellow being on the path we're helping each other whether it's the form of a finding yourself you know giving a talk not particularly inspiring kind of a bit of low energy <laughs> or whether it and yet to be able to to me really have faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha really have faith in this cosmos really have love in our heart if we love a person and say, I'll love you as long as you only smile and as long as you only tell me how good I am and as long as... And yet that's sometimes what we do with love in our immature love or our love. But somehow as our love matures more and more, there's an there's a openness and willingness to see the whole of, of a being, the whole of life, the whole of how it is. 
and and I think how love, I think love in the Buddhist way comes into this love for truth, and it also comes into sangha, this idea of how sometimes our heart is first touched by another being. Uh, and, and for me, I think of Ajahn Chah in that way. He, uh, and, and if you go back to the to the Buddha once, the the Venerable Ananda, the Buddha's uh, attendant, was saying, "Isn't it wonderful, Lord?" He was very enthusiastic, chirpy type. I mean, he was he was always. Uh, he's the one I said the other day. He wasn't enlightened till the last day before the the big council. But he's saying, "Isn't it wonderful, Lord? I mean, this 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 holy friendship that we have here, this you know, the sangha, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? It must be fifty percent of the holy life." And and the Buddha said, "Say not so, Ananda. Say not so." And you know, and I, I figure Ananda must have thought, "Oh God, what have I said wrong?" <laughs> now, and the Buddha said, "It is not half of the holy life. It is the whole of the holy life." And I think there is there's something about the word in Pali is kalyanamitta, uh, but it means a real good friend. And he describes a real good friend as someone who really has our welfare at heart, who who really, or we're a kalyanamitta to other beings if we really have the other being or other beings' welfare at heart. We really want them to be well. Means we want them to be wise and compassionate and free. And yet sometimes our, our 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 love is not that. Really, isn't that? Recently, I I know someone who's a very painful situation, but who. Uh, He said to his wife, you didn't love me as much as I loved you because you were interested in other things, not just me. Whereas I loved you, period. That's like... That reminds me of taking a butterfly and saying, I love you, and putting a needle in it and sticking it so you can keep it. But to really, to really have the welfare, someone's welfare at heart. And, and the Buddha said that he is a Kalyanamita for all beings because he has every being's welfare at heart. He resolves that all beings are going to be free peaceful, wise. And I, and I think when, when, one, when one meets the... I do think this, this, this refuge in Sangha is, is about also our human capacity we have to encourage each other to keep going. I think of Ajahn Chah when I got so terribly sick in, uh, in Thailand and um, I had diarrhea for about six months first and then uh, got turned into a skeleton and then um, started urinating blood and then I ended up in this hospital in Ubon, which is like the pits as far as hospitals go. It's in the northeast, and, and the people in the northeast know better. They don't go to the hospital unless you're going to die, and they go to the hospital. <laughs> so the doctors that end up in the northeast haven't made it anywhere else most of the time. And uh, so I got sent to this hospital, and uh, I got... I got it in the good branch. I got into the monk's wing of this hospital. I'm not feeling particularly good. And uh, the guy on my right, the first night, dies of cholera, throws up 
blood on the floor. And across the aisle was a, a boy whose leg was sort of rotting, one of these huge tropical ulcers, I guess, and they were going to cut off his leg. And his little brother was sleeping on the floor underneath the bed so he could be with his brother. Then on the uh, this side of me was a guy that was uh, going to be some kind of kidney operation or something like that. And during the night, you know, you could hear his kind of screams and stuff. And it was really, really terrifying. Really. So my, you know, faith was definitely wobbling. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the haunting in the nighttime, someone put a record on somewhere in the town, I suppose. And you heard this Samanera, this novice, this young, probably 12, 10 or 12 years old, who have beautiful voices. There was a Samanera chanting what we chant every morning and evening. Itipiso Bhagawa Arahang Sama Sambutto Vichachalana Sampano. It went on and on and on. It's beautiful. Samanera's voice chanting just the qualities of the Buddha, the qualities of the Dhamma, the qualities of the Sangha. And uh, all I can say was, you know, I mean, even just that much, just reminding, in the, in this hellhole of... And then, you know, me, my body was such that, uh, you know, they said, oh, do you want pain pills? Oh, no, 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 never mind. And because... Uh, but then they, they were doing these kind of exploratories on me and stuff like that, and something went wrong, and I had a kind of blood clot in this night, and I woke up in the middle of the night kind of screaming, and so I, I was humbled and asked for some pain uh, pain pills. Um, but somehow even just hearing hearing this uh, Buddha Dhamma Sangha helped, helped me trust enough to keep, keep trying to come back to it, the moment. Or just to bear, bear with it, stay with it. But I was seriously, I think, thinking about getting out of there. And one day, Ajahn Chah came to visit me in the hospital. And uh, Ajahn Chah is an incredibly beloved being in that uh, part of the world. And so, with all the suffering that there was in that ward, when Ajahn Chah came into the room, I mean, you can imagine how happy everybody was. He used to walk. He's he had quite a big stomach, and so he he didn't he walked in a very regal sort of way, and took his time. So it was sort of like the emperor rising, and um, but that was shining, a lot of sun, and he went and looked and talked to people at their bed, and then he came over to me and uh, asked me how I was doing, and I said. Uh, because I had been already screamed the night before about the pain. I said, well, what do you do about pain, Ajahn Chah? He said, you just have to know pain. You just have to, to be willing to know it. And I said, why? Well, I'm thinking of running away from this hospital. And... Uh, <laughs> And he said, I'll send the police after you. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I mean, that got me laughing a little bit. And um, all I I can't explain it, can't really explain it. And then I asked him, well, you know, I asked about how he deals with pain. And he just said, because he had a lot of pain, he was quite ill at that time too. And he ended up having to be 10 years paralyzed after that. Ten years. But I asked him about uh, if he was afraid of dying or something like that, and he just said, "Poem, chai, chai." And he just said, you know, that he wasn't afraid, but that he, when he died, he was going to be chai chai. And in Thai, chai chai means laid back. It means <laughs> means not worried. And from the outside, that doesn't sound very spectacular. But from the inside, when someone comes and just uh, holds your hand or 
or you really feel like what they're saying they know. He wasn't telling me about pain because he had never experienced pain. But he had really been willing to look at pain in his life, He'd been willing to look at suffering in his life. And uh, though I can't pronounce what kind of state he was in, I know that as a Kalyanamitta, as a good knowing advisor, as a friend, that was enough to encourage me to keep having faith, to stay with it, to go through the nightmare in the hospital. I got out of the hospital then, and then it didn't, I was out for a short time, and then I got typhoid, and then almost died. That time they didn't send me back to that hospital. They knew I was about to die, so they sent me down to Bangkok, a military hospital. But faith works in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's, uh, it's just trusting to continue being with the, the difficulties. It doesn't always have to be very strong in uh, very emotive. Though I have a, a, a devotional nature, and when I had my year of silence in the forest, I really loved doing a lot of uh, bowing and a lot of devotional ceremony. And I got to where I felt very emotional a lot, and I would cry very easily when I felt a sense of divine presence or uh, a beautiful sight or a, a feeling compassion. Sometimes crying because there was despair, but that was quite rare. It was more, of, more often crying out of a feeling of what's called pity or ecstatic sort of sense of uh, caring, having my heart open. But I realized, uh, though that's quite lovely and it was important to be touched, I also was getting a little bit addicted myself to feeling so touched, so touched. And, uh, and it's a little bit turbulent. And I also re- realized there was something, you know, it was almost like, well, if I was really crying, then I'm really moved, I'm really... For me, at least, I'm not, you know, for some people, that might be just the thing one needs to do. <laughs> but I realized that there came a point for me when I needed to, to also move a little more to equanimity. And because um, it, it's in equanimity that, that faith and wisdom merge, and, and all things merge in that clarity and there's not duality with you and Ajahn Chah me and Ajahn Chah me and the Buddha me and Tanisara me and anybody there's real clarity and equanimity and I see I see the boundaries all these boundaries are created by thought by the thought me, you him, her and I can really see thought for thought's sake as a bubble the bubble that it is And I can really see. Then there's a sense of wholeness to, to presence of heart, to consciousness. If we look through our eyes now and we look into this room, we're all in the same field of vision. Who took the scissors out and starts saying, "Oh, this bit of this bit's here, and tack a sign there. That's me, that's you, and that that's dead stuff. That's space." And that's, that's just a wall. And, you know, all this kind of proliferation of kind of thoughts and labels that kind of break up life. When we let thought be thought and see thought for what it is, see it in its changing nature, and, and realize that there aren't any real boundaries between beings. We're breathing the same air, drinking the same water. The thoughts that I'm having are echoing in your mind. The thoughts that you're having and that have been expressed in tea are echoing through my mind. The energy that we have is mingling. Where are we going to find the boundaries? And it's not only between beings like this, it's also between the conditioned and the unconditioned, the, that which is timeless and that which is mortal. These are words that make it sound like all, all this stuff is separate. When there's equanimity, one starts to sense how all things merge and come together. 
then, then faith can become a, a quiet thing. The, the, the greatest devotional, one of the greatest devotional yogis of all time was Ramakrishna. I mean, he was, he was the king. Ramakrishna was the king of bhakti, of devotion. I mean, ecstatic devotion. I mean, devotion that was so one-pointed and so giving and so purifying. Devotion to the mother, uh, Mother Kali. That he had this image of uh, Mother Kali of Dakineswar at his monastery that he would uh, worship every day. He would feed the image and everything. It's incredible. And he would, he would, he would see the mother and, and feel the mother guiding him in terms of being moved by the mother. But he loved devotion so much he thought, well, I think I'll find out what those who are worshipping Krishna are doing. And he'd worship Krishna until he could see Krishna and talk to Krishna. And then he would worship Jesus. And he'd worship Hanuman. So that he would actually, being a monkey in a tree, so he could really feel like what it was to serve Ram. And he actually felt like he grew a tail for a while. And, and Ramakrishna would, would, would be chanting and he'd go into ecstatic states, tears flowing down and and uh, wonderful love of God, love of truth. I don't remember which year of his life it was, but at some point he he he, he loved truth so much he always wanted to learn more. Though at some point you might know that some yogi came to visit him, who was one of these forest monk types. <laughs> yogi, mountain yogi or something whose specialty was he wasn't into devotion in the same way his specialty was the nirvakalpa samadhi which was a sort of he could go into he'd been working on it for 20 years and he could go into a place of, uh, of the uh, where feeling would just sort of cut out and he just kind of wouldn't move up to a week, and uh, and uh, so he uh, Ramakrishna, being a humble man, was, uh, wanted to talk to him about it and wanted to learn his stuff. And and uh, so, thing is, Ramakrishna, whenever he'd meditate, he'd always see the mother, or he'd see Hanuman, or he'd see Krishna, or he'd see Jesus. And uh, and, and the, the guy said, "Hey, you got to cut that out." You know, you're always putting them out there. It's duality. You got to cut through that image of uh, of uh, the mother. So he actually got a stone because uh, I might be a little wrong on this, but this is how I remember it. Had, uh, he kept having this image. He, he pressed a stone so that the pain would kind of help him see through stuff, something like that. And he let go of, of this, this uh, attachment he had, this yearning to always be worshipping the mother, this duality, let go of that. And in three days, blew the yogi's mind. <laughs> Ramakrishna, then he just didn't move. You know, it took that guy 20 years, it took Ramakrishna a couple of days. But then he didn't move, didn't want to eat, didn't do anything. For I don't know how many days he did, and then he came out, and he was so grateful. Because he said it changed, it changed his devotion. He still was incredibly devotional, but until he had also given up some of that ecstatic part, it's not the ecstatic part wasn't important. It purified him. It made him one-pointed. Made him very humble. But but it also had to come around again to get clear, because only in clarity then could he could he sort of see the subtlety of the me and you. That the division that somehow was still created <coughs> between the Lord out there, truth out there. And he, as I understand it, he felt profoundly grateful for, for, for being able to realize the foundation of faith. And that's where wisdom and faith can come together. And that sort of faith won't be spectacular in terms of necessarily expression. 
might be very quiet. Um, sometime in the middle of this uh, retreat in the forest, I wrote a short poem about faith. Uh, it expresses some of these ideas. It, went, uh, it, was, it was called faith. And the poem is like this. Trust is precious. A treasure trove of gold. Guard it with all your heart and you'll never get old. It's not a matter of this or that believed or disbelieved, but rather letting where you're at be silently received. The heart of faith, the heart that knows, leaves no trace and neither comes no goes. So like Ramakrishna, I'm, I think all of us, like Ramakrishna, are fortunate and grateful to have these good friends to, to, that we can keep learning from. So may we continue to, to listen to the theory to not be satisfied with that, to put it into practice. And not just practice, but also practice for the sake of awakening to the truth for the welfare of all beings.